The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. All right, everyone, let's get started. Uh, I'm Ramesh Raskar, and this is... Uh, uh, Mass 131 and uh, 531, uh, computational camera and photography. Uh, and we have about, I think, about fifty to $60,000 worth of equipment right here. <laughs> so please hold on to the door if something goes on. I really need your help to protect all these things. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to see you know, crazy kinds of cameras, crazy kind of photography, medical imaging, and applications in uh, different domains. And I just wanted to show this really beautiful picture that some of you may have seen uh, on, on, on blogs. <coughs> this is a real photo uh, taken by an iPhone camera of um, uh, propeller blades on an aircraft. Anybody knows what's going on? Yeah. The sensor takes line by line images, mm -hmm. and by the time it goes to the next line, next vertical line, mm -hmm. the propellers have moved. Mm -hmm. So it traces the propellers in move directions. And not the exact location. Excellent. Get the, uh, exactly. So when you think about an image, we think about it as some kind of a snapshot, uh, some kind of a you know progressive photo. But there are two motions going on here. One is a motion of the blade, which is which is uh, circular uh, and with with radial blades. And then there is uh, a, a motion, effectively, of the sampler, which is moving from up to down. You know, it's a rolling shutter. So when you uh, there's a very nice animation of that. So this is the rolling shutter. The camera is exposing approximately just one line at a time. And uh, as the blades uh, rotate around, <coughs> you can see that it's tracing these curves. Okay. So, so this example should show you that you know we can't take anything for for granted when it comes to when it comes to uh, today's modern photography. And this is most an artifact of a really cheap sensor that cell phone cameras use because of bandwidth constraints. It's much easier to roll and read one line at a time than reading the whole buffer of the camera at the same time. So you know, you get these beautiful artifacts. So kind of one open question is, if camera makers start supporting or start rather cheaping out on rather than just one line at a time, if they come up with even cheaper mechanisms where they're sampling, you know, in some random sequence or, you know, you know, any artifacts they create, how will photographers exploit, exploit that to create, you know, this stunning and beautiful imagery? <coughs> uh, more on the scientific side, let's see the lightning is strange here. Let's see if you can play with that. Yeah. See if there's another switch that turns the light in the back. No. <laughs> We're going to learn a lot about uh, computational illumination in this. <laughs> that may be okay for now, and we'll, we'll switch it back. So uh, imagine you have uh, somebody out here behind a, a shower curtain, uh, and you want to take a photo. Uh, and you may be able to come with a photo where you just see the shower curtain behind the person behind, without the without the person behind the shower curtain. Uh, but maybe you can also create a photo where you realize who's behind uh, the shower curtain. And this is a trick 
that's, that's achieved using a special type of a flash. Uh, and as you'll see, we will generalize the flash to a very highly programmable illumination. And with that, uh, photography of this kind is also possible. What else? Uh, here's a great example I like to show. Um, imagine you have a scene, and instead of a camera, you just have a single photo detector. Okay, it could be light sensor of your of your SLR camera, um, <clears throat> or those of you who like to think about just photo diodes, uh, just one photo diode. And instead of taking a photo, what I'm going to do is turn on one pixel of this projector at a time, and record this. If the projector has one million pixels, I'm going to take one million measurements by turning on one at a time. What picture will I get here? Will I get a picture from those one million measurements? Anybody? You know, you'll get a photo that looks like the, a camera was placed here instead of over here. Uh, and this is exactly how a barcode scanner uh, at checkout counter works as well. The barcode scanner doesn't have a camera. It just has a, uh, a sweeping laser. And, and the same apparatus, there is also a single photo detector. So as the barcode scanner hits the 1010 patterns of uh, the printed code, uh, when it hits the black spot, it doesn't reflect much light, and if it hits the white spot, it reflects much light. And in this way, uh, a barcode scanner, without having to worry about focus and dynamic range <laughs> and all those issues, can figure out what the barcode is. is. Isn't it important, though, that the barcode scanner is a laser which mm -hmm. keeps the pixels spatially localized? Very, very focused. Right. Whereas here, if you have an incoherent light source mm -hmm. and you're illuminating a real scene, you'll illuminate the whole scene kind of diffusely. And that's a very good point. So that's why we have to use a projector. So we are turning on only one pixel mm -hmm. of the projector. So as if, in, in very simple words, it's turning on only one ray mm -hmm. in the scene. You're not, the projector is not flat field. Okay, not all the pixels are on at the, at the time. And that's why we have to take one million readings by turning on one pixel at a time. So, so that's, that's straightforward. This is uh, very well known. Uh, what are some other things you can do with, with this particular duality? Uh, if you replace the photo detector with a camera, uh, you can do something similar. You can turn on one pixel at a time uh, and take a full photo. So again, I'm going to turn on one pixel of the, of the projector at a time, and in this case, take one million photos. Okay. Now, once you do that, what I will be able to do is create a relationship between what happens when I turn on exactly one pixel of this projector. One pixel is turned on, a photo is taken, I can measure what happens to this particular pixel of the camera. Uh, and in this way, you will create a four-dimensional relationship. Uh, 2D for the camera and 2D for uh, the, the, sorry, 2D for the projector and 2D for the camera. So a million photos here and a million pixels here. So you're going to have you know, a trillion uh, uh, measurements, 10 to the 12. Uh, now you can invert that uh, and ask for a single <coughs> pixel of the camera which projector pixels are contributing. So the question to ask is, I'm going to turn on one pixel at a time. Uh, if I turn on just this ray, for example, it will only contribute to, say, this pixel. But if there was some interreflection, it will also contribute to some other pixel, and so on. So you're going to have this global transport uh, of light. And from that, you can ask this question, which projector, for a given camera pixel, what are the other projector pixels that are contributing to it? Uh, and so you can do this, this inversion, which uh, is, is, uh, is, is 
are relatively straightforward to do. And then you can do experiments like this. You know, how can you read your opponent's cards? Uh, you know, from across the table, uh, you can turn on a projector one pixel at a time, uh, look at the interreflection, and see the camera. Turn on the next pixel, um, and so on. And after you allow your opponent to take a million photos of him, uh, you'll be able to read the card, although it will not directly visible from your uh, point of view. So you can kind of look around uh, an occluder and, and what's behind uh, a corner. What's the, what's the flaw in this argument that you can look around the corner? Yes? Exactly. There's some device that you have to place that's actually looking at, looking at, uh, looking at that card. So you know, uh, this is a beautiful project from, from Stanford. Um, and one of their funding agencies, of course, the Army. And they would like to know what's around the corner. But of course, you have to go and place a projector in the enemy land to be able to figure out who's, uh, who's out there. So uh, this is the message of this class. Pure digital cameras are extremely boring. Um, and if you look at these two cameras, one of them is digital, one of them is film. Can you really figure out which one is which? Left is digital. Right is digital. OK. And rest are confused, right? <laughs> So hardly any difference between them. You know, zoom, focus, aperture, exposure, all the same old boring stuff. There's, there's not much extra going on. And if somebody claims that digital camera have spawned a new art form, probably not. I mean, you could just take film cameras, scan them in, and, and play with them. They're just faster, better, uh, and cheaper. Um, so when, when people think about um, computational photography and computational camera, uh, they start thinking about, wow, okay, I have this camera that doesn't do a very good job of uh, dynamic range and, and field of view uh, and so on. Uh, so what I'm going to do is somehow improve the performance of this camera. Uh, one common is by boosting the dynamic range by taking multiple photo by exposure bracketing. Uh, or having a larger depth of field by taking multiple photo by taking focus bracketing. Uh, and so on. Uh, if you want to increase the field of view, you're going to do a panorama and then stitch it together. Uh, if you want to increase the frame rate, you're going to play with the exposure time and so on. So this is what a lot of people think about as computational <coughs> camera and photography. Uh, and I just want to emphasize that this is not what we're going to talk about in this class. Uh, these are concepts relatively easy to understood, understand. And I have a lot of lecture notes and videos online you can look it up in a, in a couple of hours. You'll get a pretty good overview of all the things that can be done uh, in this space. And if you go to Flickr, uh, you know, there are uh, groups that are just exploring high dynamic range imaging. And so, so we are not really going to talk about that because all these techniques are just trying to improve the performance of a camera. It's not trying to change the game of a lot of So generalizing it even further, what we're going to look at is cameras that are not just 2D sensors mimicking film, but they could be zero-dimensional sensors that are, as I said, in barcode scanner, and we'll look at time of flight, uh, motion detection, 1D sensors that you see in flatbed scanners or fax machines, uh, or line scan cameras that are used in photo finish at uh, sports events, uh, 2.5D sensors, 3D sensors of different kind, and very quickly into 4D and 6D devices that are uh, exploiting deconvolution and tomography uh, in medical imaging or scientific imaging 
and also displays that are four-dimensional and six-dimensional. So uh, earlier we saw that you can look around the corner by placing a device uh, in the line of sight, which is the projector. Now, but that was done three years ago, or four years ago, 2005. Uh, do we have some new machinery now that will allow us to look around the corner? So you have, you're out here. Uh, <laughs> meetings are canceled. It's a good day. <laughs> uh, <coughs> you know, you're out here, and you want to see what's inside uh, with a door that partially open. This is possible. Or uh, imagine your uh, your uh, cameras uh, that are right now in mobile devices. You know, you have this this thing that's shrinking every day, uh, getting cheaper but also shrinking and actually degrading uh, its uh, signal to noise ratio performance. Uh, but imagine if your whole um, LCD becomes photosensitive. So every pixel that's emitting on your LCD also becomes photosensitive. Um, and companies like Sharp and Planar are already doing that. So they have this um, LCD array uh, where if you put a finger directly on top of the LCD, uh, you can even look at the ridges uh, in, on, this, uh, on, this, uh, on this finger. So there, there's some very beautiful opportunities. And I just saw Kimo and Ted here. They have also a very exciting project where they can use an ordinary camera to look at, you know, right down to the resolution of, of, your, of your ridges. Now the question is, if we redefine a camera not to be this perspective device that behaves like a pinhole camera, but the whole screen is like sensing. Uh, there's a fusion of uh, sensor and optics. You know, think about uh, in the display domain, a CRT. There is an emitter, the, the electron beam, and then there's a receiver, which is the phosphorescent screen. There's always this separation between what's emitting it and what's receiving it. And over time, of course, uh, we have LCDs where everything is fused together. Uh, and if you think about cameras, it's the same, right? You have a lens that's collecting, and then you have a sensor that's receiving. And you know, we have been taught that there always has to be some distance, sufficient distance. If you have a 35 millimeter camera, you have to have roughly 35 millimeters <coughs> between your lens and your sensor. And you know we can throw away all those constraints and all those assumptions, and we might be able to come up with devices where the lens and the optics and the sensor is all just one thing, uh, and that would be kind of the LCD equivalent of a camera. So this is something we can we can think about, uh, and these devices are coming mainly because they want to support touch sensing. Uh, but imagine the future if you have your mobile device and you can just wave it uh, and take a picture. And because your sensor is so large, you know, you'll be able to collect a lot of light. And right now, this is, you know, it's not even megapixel yet, but this will be a megapixel, 10 megapixel, and you'll be able to multiplex those pixels for color and, and infrared and, and all kinds of beautiful things, uh, different <coughs> speeds and so on. So that's how we're going to think about in this class about cameras and photography. Uh, and the same with uh, medical imaging. Uh, Right now, medical imaging is thought of, you know, medical imaging today is very similar to photography in the 1930s. Uh, the guy who took the photo uh, was more important than the people whose photo was being taken sometimes. Because those people have to go to this guy 
and stand for some time. And he had this one specialized device called a camera. Uh, everybody has to stand still for a few seconds. You take a picture, and then you go home, and then after a couple of days, you get your photo back. And that's exactly what medical imaging is all about today. We have to go to a special location to get our CAT scan or ultrasound scan done. Uh, and our, our time is completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, our time is considered you know, not so important. The guy who's running the machine, he's very important because we have to make an appointment <laughs> with this guy. Um, so can we bring, will medical imaging evolve, evolve to a stage where it's like photography today? Uh, you know, clearly when, when we take a photo, you know, if somebody spills a coffee, we take a photo. It's, it's a very casual way of thinking about photography. And will medical imaging evolve to a stage where we can do that? And it turns out we can. There are certain directions, certain computational methods that we will be able to develop uh, that will get rid of older mindsets of how medical devices are being built. Uh, so a very brief introduction of uh, where I come from uh, and our group here, Camera Culture. Uh, so in the past, I have worked a lot on computational illumination, different types of projectors, creating multi-projector displays, uh, creating virtual reality uh, setups, uh, augmented reality, a lot of work on pocket projectors and augmented reality with pocket projectors, uh, interaction paradigms, uh, work with RFIDs and so on. Uh, and in the last uh, eight years or so, uh, a lot of work in cameras, uh, playing with uh, shutter, aperture, uh, light fields, uh, illumination, wavelength, uh, and sensors, uh, and so on. And some of the questions we, we discuss uh, in our group are, are this. You know, what will the camera look like in 10 or 20 years from now? Uh, I already gave you uh, one kind of possible direction where it might be just a flat screen, uh, or maybe it's just your credit card. But you know, it could even be uh, a, a retinal display, a retinal uh, sensor. And digital sensors. You know, how will the next billion cameras change our social fabric, our social culture? Uh, if you think about the, if you think about the internet, it has been transformed by the ability to search. Uh, that includes uh, indexing and segmenting and sorting and, and and all those beautiful problems. But image search, even today, remains an extremely challenging problem. Uh, so. Maybe we can change the game and modify our devices, modify our cameras, modify our displays, modify our, our storage devices, and so on, so that image search can become simpler. Okay. If, say, magically you have a camera that's 100 megapixel, uh, when I take your photo, uh, I can zoom in all the way down to your iris. Uh, and if I have an iris detector, then how very easy identification and all the photos I take of Dina, for example, they're all indexed with her with her iris um, uh, code. So you know, that's kind of a very zeroth level way of thinking about simplifying uh, image search. But we look at very interesting example that exploit uh, thermal IR imaging, uh, light field cameras, and so on. Uh, what will happen when pervasive recording is being used not just by the Big Brother? but it's actually being used for some beneficial purposes in commercial settings. So imagine a scenario, something like Google Earth Live, where right now you can go to Google Earth and, and uh, fire up the, the browser, and you can go to any part of the world and see how, you, how it looks about six months ago or, or a year ago. 
But imagine if you can just fire up your browser and go to this location live, as it's happening now. Uh, and of course, you can move your slider and go back and forth in time. So if you have a camera on every street pole, every bus, every taxi, every person, uh, and all those data, all the data is being streamed uh, on the on the network, so you can go to any part of the world and, and see it. How will that how will that world look like? Uh, I'm sure many of you are, are you know <laughs> are, are definitely scared and, and given all the privacy and, and security notions of it. But this could become very similar to uh, the safety we have a little bit in our financial system or financial transactions. You know, when I use my card uh, in a restaurant, a bunch of people actually see my credit card number and all the information. You know, uh, the waitress looks at my card, and the owner knows it, the bank knows it, the credit card company knows it, uh, the government of course knows it, and so on. And a lot of people know about your financial transactions, but somehow you are completely comfortable uh, sharing your, your financial data. And similarly, can we create cameras and photography and imaging uh, infrastructure so that if you walk down the street and all these cameras are looking at you, anybody in the world could be looking at you live, you feel completely secure that's being used only by the right people for the right reasons. And if you don't want them to see it, you have some switch on you that says, I'm completely invisible and it, you should be able to walk down the street. Can we create such an imaging infrastructure? Um, Think about high-speed cameras and high-resolution cameras. Maybe we'll have microscopes and nanoscopes with us that will, again, change the way we think about uh, medical imaging. And what about movie making and news reporting? Uh, as you know, it has dramatically changed over the last uh, three or four years because, again, a billion people have cameras out there. You know, whether there is an event in, uh, in, in Tibet or there's a satellite imagery of what's going on in Burma um, or, you know, a plane that's about to crash, you get amazing videos, uh, and that's, they're not captured by CNN, they're captured by other people. So how are we going to, again, uh, change this imaging infrastructure, uh, the whole pipeline, to uh, think about the future of movie making and, uh, and news reporting? So overall, in this course, we're not going to think about purely about software. We're going to think about how we can change the camera, not just use the camera. So that involves optics and illumination and sensor and motion of the sensor, motion of the optics, uh, the sen uh, different wavelengths, uh, 3D cameras, polarization, uh, probes and actuators, and also uh, priors and online collections, uh, the network there. And one, uh, one kind of theme you'll see is uh, after years of research in computer vision, one could argue that we have exhausted the bits that are available in Pixel. There's still a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done. But still, there's a there's seem challenging even today with sophisticated computing algorithms. It's challenging. So maybe we can build feature-revealing cameras that will go hand-in-hand -hand with uh, existing or modern uh, scene understanding algorithms so that we can process photons and create this metastructure for our imaging pipeline. So what we're going to do today is uh, I'll briefly describe what, what this course is about, do some introductions, uh, and the second half we will come around and do a fast forward preview of, uh, of the whole course. Okay. So 
In the next few slides, I'm just going to give you a quick kind of rundown of what this course is about, uh, the layout. Here's a nice, uh, nice overview of the, the biological successful vision uh, in, the, in the animal eyes. And there's a nice paper uh, in Science. And you can, you can take all the bi successful biological vision and uh, place that in kind of eight categories. You have eyes based on shadows, based on refraction, based on reflection, uh, single-chambered eyes, uh, or compound eyes, sometimes uh, uh, with opposition, sometimes with superposition, uh, and so on. We'll come back and discuss this more. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, the eyes of uh, a scallop, um, it's based on a mirror, not on a lens. So you have a mirror down here, and the sensor is up here. Um, and light actually reflects from this concave mirror, and the image is formed on the detector. And you know, the future camera in your uh, mobile device on a flat sensor could be on this architecture. It doesn't have to be on this single chambered eye with refraction. So the human vision is, you know, in this corner here. It's a single chambered, uh, single chamber design with uh, with lenses. <coughs> and all the cameras, at least all the standard cameras that that we know of, are in this particular part. But there's a lot to explore. And that doesn't even explore computation. This is pretty much raw imaging uh, that these uh, animals are using. So, you know, film-like traditional photography, uh, light comes in through <coughs> the lens, it falls on the detector of the film, and that's the end of the story. That's your photo. You just transfer it digitally or by, by chemical processing, and you just see it. Um, computational camera is, is a little bit different. We're going to have some crazy optics uh, that's going to think about how rays and wavefronts are manipulated. Uh, we're going to have a uh, sensor that's not just mimicking film. It's not going to be a flat sensor. Uh, it will have its own geometry and, and spectrum and so on. Uh, and your, uh, uh, what you see finally will not be just a raw image, but it will have some reconstruction and computation uh, on top. So that's computational camera. Um, that's, that would be what's in the in computational camera, but there's also an element that's outside the camera, which is lighting. And instead of just a, a flashlight, you're going to have a flashlight with sophisticated modulators that are changing the intensity and phase and polarization of light uh, in different directions, uh, uh, different kinds of additional optics, and so on. So once you have a programmable light and a computational camera, we have a framework to uh, really exploit. Uh, and understand the light transport uh, in the scene. <coughs> so, uh, something interesting is happening in the camera world. We are here 2008-2009, uh, about a billion cameras are being sold every year. Which is fine, uh, most people know that, but if you just go back about six years, 2001-2002, zero cameras were sold embedded in a mobile phone. So we have gone from a zero to a billion in just six years. Uh, so it's just an amazing time to think about think about imaging. Um, and this is very much like uh, you know, all the fun in networking and communication back in the 90s 
when millions of people were coming on board uh, and thousands of websites were, uh, you know, going on board. And this is this is this is that was computing, and this is the time for visual computing. Uh, and because this game is changing so fast in terms of cost, uh, in terms of performance, uh, applications where imaging was considered, uh, you know, uh, not not the perfect solution, uh, is is changing. We're, we're seeing cameras being used in some some really casual and and, and very strange ways. And and here's an indication of where where that's going. So where are these cameras? Remember, cameras are not just 2D sensors but for photography, uh, but they're used in, in various ways. So uh, we are here, 2008, 2009. Uh, the pink here is uh, because of mobile phones. About a billion sensors uh, are being sold. Uh, any guesses about what these other slivers are? The blue one, the green one, and so on. Where are all these, you know, a couple of hundred million here? About 100 million here are being sold. And guess this is a mouse. Sorry? Uh, optical mouse, very good, very good. Gaming. Gaming. So, you know, if you think about V, uh, I think sold like 30 million uh, V more, 30 million V more were sold. And this chart was actually made before that, so that's not even here, but that's going to be there, yes. And of course, there's traditional photography, right? So, but I'm glad you got the optical mouse because that's one of the largest markets. It's basically a very low resolution, usually 20 by 20 or 32 by 32 pixel camera that's running at 1,000 or 2,000 hertz. It's a high-speed camera that's doing optical flow to figure out where your mouse is, even if you put it on a, uh, a very clear surface. Uh, and then mobile phones and digital cameras. And you know all this, all this worry about Big Brother, if you think about security, it's very, very tiny sliver out here. Um, and if you think about the first three criteria, first three categories here: optical mouse, mobile phones, and uh, digital and, and video cameras. These are all personal devices, and this is going to scale with the number of people in the world. So you know this will easily become six billion or six point five billion, whatever we have. Uh, but these other slivers may or may not grow. Gaming, for example, could still grow very rapidly because you know almost every person individually might own. A, a, a game console. So, very interesting here. Uh, you know, if, if you look around the internet, uh, cameras are being, sometimes it's just silly. Uh, you may know about this uh, do-it-yourself green screen effects company, U-Star, uh, and they want to be uh, the guitar hero uh, in the visual domain. So, instead of you know, playing music, that's synchronized with some uh, uh, pre-recorded data. Here they have pre-recorded video segments, and then you can star in this movie. It's pretty big. Uh, it's you know, if you go to their website, a lot of people uploading their videos uh, with their software and their screen screen. All they give you is a camera, simple camera, not even a stereo pair, just a simple camera and a big plastic green screen. Uh, and they have some software for uh, green screen matting and so on. Uh, you may be familiar with this. Uh, Mirio, which company is that? I forgot. Starts with M. Uh, it's a stereo webcam. Mirono, it's a Japanese company. I forget. Uh, some some other interesting ones. Look at this one here. Panasonic Beauty Appliance. What does it do? Any guesses? <laughs> it's a pretty big camera. 
It's a personal beauty uh, appliance where um, it provides uh, humidification in a very local spot. So you know you can sit there, sit all day around, and it, you know it, I guess, maintains the right level of uh, moisture and humidity around. So your skin won't get very dry. What about this one? The camera is not anywhere near the eyesight, but the camera is actually on the ear. The camera is looking sightless. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was reading up on this. It wasn't very clear what the applications are, but you know you, you can think of it. I mean. If you're walking down the street and you want to be safe, something's coming at you, maybe maybe it tells you, or you know, if there's somebody you don't like, they're walking towards you. So don't turn around. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's going to happen more and more, more crazy places. Uh, I like this uh, Gigapan Epic 100, which is for creating panoramic imagery, but it's actually uh, uh, basically a tiny, tiny robotic platform, about $300, I don't know, for a hundred currently. Uh, and has a physical lever that presses on the shutter <laughs> as, as it rotates around. Right? It's pretty amazing. Uh, and of course, uh, Fuji has, uh, is doing some fantastic work, you know, just starting with the stereo pair, uh, and they're trying to provide the whole pipeline all the way down to printing on a lenticular screen so you can enjoy this, uh, this uh, stereo modes. Okay, so after you look at all this, all this camera, you say, okay, what else is there to do? Because these are just you don't have to do much research to do any one of these projects. You don't have to take a class to you know, build these uh, applications. Uh, so let's think about something, trying to improve the camera just a little bit. All I want is depth per pixel. Something humans seem to be doing very well. You know, we, can, we can use our two eyes and figure out how far things are. Uh, at least we think we know how far things are. Uh, there's a lot of prior information. But for a camera, just to get depth is extremely challenging. After 30, 40 years of research uh, in computer vision, still you can't go out there and buy a camera uh, that's a reasonable cost, which runs at a reasonable speed and gives you depth per pixel. Uh, it's amazing. So we'll show you what the state of the art is using uh, this multi-thousand dollar camera, uh, which is going to do us by like kind of stuff. And uh, who's going to run? You want to run this one? So this is the camera that uses uh, that uses time of flight to uh, maybe you don't like me. Oh, we don't. This is an active light camera, so it doesn't matter. Okay? So this is uh, time of flight. All those LEDs are being, those of you who have a cell phone camera, uh, just look at these lights through your uh, through your camera. You'll see all of them are lit up. Those are the near IR. Um, and uh, as you can see here, um, who's it looking at? Is it LUA? Okay, so the people in the front are, are marked in green, and somebody in the back over there, yeah, are marked in yellow. So you know, it's giving you some estimate of depth. Uh, by doing a time of flight calculation. Now this is the, the Tenesla camera. Uh, and it works okay, but as you can see the quality, uh, even in this relatively easy configuration, most of the objects are diffused, there are reasonable distance, the room doesn't have sunlight to overwhelm this active light, and even then the quality is okay, it's not that great. Uh, and uh, I forget the exact cost of this one, but you know, they cost about $10,000. 
Uh, go ahead. What is it called? Uh, this one is Canesta. Yeah, but during the during the during the uh, later classes, we'll learn about all the different 3D cameras, whether they're based on active light uh, or stereo or structured light, uh, polarization, uh, and so on. So this one is Canesta. There are other companies, 3DV. Uh, which was recently bought by Microsoft. Um, um, and then there's a, a couple of companies in Germany uh, who are building uh, 3D cameras. And apparently this market is now being driven by game consoles because PlayStation and Xbox are all interested in using 3D cameras uh, in, uh, in the house for, for gaming, for interacting with gestures. So they want to distinguish this from this for example, because right now all the games are in the gorilla mode, right? The hands have to be away from your body to play the games, uh, iToy and, and Xbox and so on. But the new ones will allow you to do uh, gestures that are that are um, uh, more more intricate. So uh, there are too many challenges just to get 3D, you know, because you have you have to use some kind of active light to compensate for for ambient scenes. Um, you have to stitch. Uh, geometry capture from multiple views. Uh, if you have something like marble or skin, it has subsurface scattering, so that's difficult to deal with. Uh, you cannot do good triangulation. And these at least objects that are diffuse, have diffuse reflection component. If you go into something that has glass or, or dark, it's just out of question. Right? So, computational camera it should do something more than just capturing a 2D image. Uh, and those of you who are here, uh, you know, building real-time HCI applications and uh, or for robotics, anything like that, there's no there's no camera right now that can deal with objects like this. This is amazing, you know. So we have a billion cameras out there, but none of those cameras can solve these problems. So that's what we're going to look at uh, in this class. Can I ask a quick question about that? Yeah. So I'm just thinking back to the traditional film-type camera mm -hmm. that has autofocus sensors right. that are contrast-based or a like rangefinder-type thing. Right. So that, in a way, gives you depth by moving optical elements. Mm -hmm. It, But this doesn't have any moving parts, right. I guess. Does, does that count as a way to try to make a, a, a camera that perceives depth by having something that scans physical optics Exactly. Around. I, I think you're asking a very important question. You know, there's. Uh, let's see if I have a slide. So, you know, uh, if you think about different way of scanning in 3D, and this is, by the way, uh, it's one of our uh, uh, visiting students, uh, Doug Langman and, and Gabriel Tobin. They have a beautiful course uh, at SIGGRAPH on all different ways of doing 3D scanning. Um, and you know, there are contact based, um, and they're non-contact based. And right now, we're talking about mostly active. Uh, by using you know time of flight and so on, but there are of course passive as well, mm -hmm. stereo uh, and motion and, and so on, based on focus and defocus. That may be a good segue to actually look at this camera here. And is Emily, or you want to run it? Yeah, I see that. Yeah. So this camera is completely passive. Okay. It's a light-free camera, which has. Uh, you want to talk over it? Yeah. Basically, it's 25 separate images. Each one of these is a separate camera. But it's on a single chassis. Yeah, and there's just 25 different images. So. Uh, but each one's from a slightly different perspective. Um, so you can do things like add all the images together, but slightly shift them. 
Um, so I can focus down at infinity towards the end of the table. Um, or I can change the focus um, by just simply by shifting or moving the images to focus right there. So remember, he's, he's doing all this operation in software. Yeah. The, you can no, take those 25 images and then software, you can refocus it anywhere you want. And then again, based on uh, based on uh, uh, maximum contrast or one of those operators, you could potentially figure out uh, what's uh, in front or what's behind. But of course, if you put you know some transparent object, it's going to be quite challenging to figure out where this is. Or if I just put something that's really flat, then it wouldn't know whether it's in focus or not in focus in the middle of the paper. It might be able to do an okay job on the on the boundaries of the paper, but in the middle of the paper, it always looks like it's low frequency. Right. So this kind of cameras are coming. You know, you can buy this camera for about twenty thousand uh, dollars from View Plus. Uh, so far, we have up to what thirty? Okay, up, up to thirty k, right? We did ten and we did twenty. Next one will be. We'll, we'll get to sixty very quickly. Sixty k. Um, and if you, if you, if you again think about your your cell phone camera, uh, the current mindset in camera makers is that they want to shrink it to something that's smaller and smaller and smaller. But you know, if you want to create enough baseline, create you know some kind of focus-based uh, depth extraction, for example, as you're looking at here, we must have some baseline between them, and that's what this camera does. It's still pretty compact. I forget. I think it's six centimeters total, something like that. Uh, and you know, it could be on your phone. It does have that much space. So if they would just turn it around and make all of these, all the pixels as sensing pixels, you have enough baseline from the left edge of the camera, left edge of this cell phone camera, <laughs> to the right edge of the cell phone camera to create those effects. Right? But that mindset has to change. Right now, uh, as we will see in the class, uh, later on, uh, on the section on, on, on sensors, there is tremendous innovation uh, in how uh, photos, uh, sorry, image sensors are being built. There are wafer-level cameras, uh, backside illumination, uh, 3D VLSI, and so on. But unfortunately, all I mean, it's all great and it's going to help us. But unfortunately, all of them have a single track mind. They just want to make a higher signal-to-noise ratio, that means collect as many photons as you can, and they want to shrink the sensor as small as you can so that they can sell it for a cheap cost. Uh, but, you know, if you think about, if somebody had told you 30 years ago um, that, you know, the TVs are really expensive, uh, so what we're going to do is try start building TVs that are smaller and smaller because they'll be cheaper and cheaper, right? But that's, that's not how it works. People want larger and larger TVs. And they're willing to pay for 40-inch and 50-inch TVs. And there will come a time when people say, it's OK if I have to pay a little bit more, but make my sensor and make my sensor array larger and larger so that it's almost the size of the whole device. Right? Uh, even, for, even for a camera, like a, an SLR camera, not the whole camera is, is sensing, only a small part of it is sensing. Uh, but once we get around this notion that you know, silicon is really expensive and we have to shrink it and we have to create this wafer, we can slice and dice it into millions of tiny uh, sensor, sensors for uh, cameras, hopefully things will ch change around and uh, you know, we won't be watching those tiny TVs as they had predicted some time ago.
Um, so, so that's kind of you know where, where some of these things are. So um, let me go back. So getting 3D very challenging, um, and that I would say is kind of you know version 0.1 of a computation camera. I mean, it has to sense you know the three-dimensional world to do anything, anything interesting. Um, and it is being used in other scenarios. I mean, Dalpa Grand Challenge. Uh, this has an animation for no reason. Uh, where you can build uh, uh, vehicles that can navigate through um, through um, ter- any kind of terrain, including uh, urban neighborhoods. Uh, so the first version of the Darpa Grand Challenge actually had a lot of cameras. Um, but the sad aspect from a camera point of view is that the second version that uh, was uh, Stanford uh, was the winner in that one. In the traditional definition of a camera, there were no cameras on the whole vehicle. There were zero cameras on a car that's built to navigate in a city. It's pretty sad. I mean, if you think about a human uh, driver driving through a city, uh, I would say almost all our input, all our actions are based on visual input. Uh, But cameras are so primitive to build this uh, self-navigating vehicle that no traditional cameras were used. Now, of course, I'm taking to the extreme because the kind of devices they did use were similar to uh, range scanning devices. They had laser scanners, LIDAR that are using time of flight and so on. And in a way, they're capturing uh, information that's sensitive to different directions. So, you know, in a way, it's a camera, but it's not a traditional visible range camera uh, that they're using. It's a, it's a detector, a single pixel detector that's measuring light coming from, from different directions. Um, and on the other extreme, that's one extreme where cameras are not good enough to self-navigate. On the other extreme, you have you know, lots of people online, again, this is a slide from, from Doug Landman, uh, building their own uh, uh, 3D scanners. So of course, you can take a Logitech webcam and put some fiducials, you can calibrate that and move it around uh, to create 3D models, um, and a whole bunch. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll look at this during the thing. People are using uh, uh, just a wine glass to create laser stripes. So you know, I can take a laser pointer uh, and shine it at a wine glass to create a laser stripe. I don't even have to buy expensive optics. And we just scan it, and uh, you know, uh, a cheap DV cam to create 3D scanners. This one is probably most interesting. Um, they want to create. Again, a very accurate 3D model uh, from a Lego rig. And this is how it works. Uh, you can probably guess it from the picture. There is a milk bath. They want to take a character and scan it. They'll put this character in milk bath uh, and take a photo from above, doing a very simple segmentation. And then over time, they're going to put a little bit more milk <laughs> so that the level of uh, the fluid will rise in this square bucket, this uh, rectangular bucket. Uh, and they'll continue to take pictures, and they'll create this 3D model section by section. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Uh, they, they did it in New York with humans. Sorry? They did it in New York uh, with humans. You can go in the milk and uh-huh. scan you. <laughs> <laughs> so some people here have been scanned. Excellent. <laughs> I would imagine going the other way is easier. Just drain it. <laughs> yeah. Right? Just yeah, fill it up, drop something, and drain it. It will go at a cons- almost constant rate. It's true. It's true. Um, but... Yeah, this could be a great, great class project yeah. uh, for, for this. 
so here's a, here's a slightly different direction that, that some people are taking, and I really like this work from University of Washington. Uh, some of your, uh, okay, let me, let me state the question first and see if any one of you has an answer to that. Let's say you go to Rome and you're in front of the Trevi Fountain. Uh, you take a photo and you, you don't know anything about Trevi Fountain and all the hype about it. Uh, you want to take a photo and figure out which part of this photo is interesting according to everybody else. So why, why am I here? Should I be looking at, uh, if I go to you know, the, the old town square in Prague, uh, I'm not going to look at a fountain here. I'm going to look at you know, the upper part of the, of, the, of the castle. But somehow when I'm at the, at the Trevi Fountain, I'm not looking at the buildings. I'm looking at the fountain. So how would I determine, uh, without looking in my guidebook, uh, which part is most interesting? Any clues? Any answers? Go ahead. Uh, You're qualified, yeah. One thing you could perhaps do is uh, take a consensus for all the photos that have been taken of this object and uh, basically see where the feature tracks overlap. And you just learn it. Excellent, excellent. So this is actually uh, an offshoot of the photo tourism Microsoft Photo Synth project, where you know you have millions of photos of the same. Uh, tourist location, uh, and once you have registered them uh, the, in 3D, then you can just shoot the rays back to see which rays will intersect uh, the pixels. If most of the rays should, should seem to be shooting, uh, you know, just kind of a uh, just just a just a histogram, uh, you'll realize that most of the photos are looking at the fountain, and in this case, most of the photos are looking up at the at the top part of the castle. So maybe it's what is popular here. Yeah. You're right. You're right. So the next question is, how can we? F it's like popular versus interesting on Flickr. <laughs> so, so here's a research question. How can we ask? How can we answer this question? There may be certain features that human visual system finds particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. Things with high levels of non-repetitive detail, or mm -hmm. certain shapes, or ratios, or yeah, yeah certainly. Yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot to be done. Uh, so maybe if we want to build a camera that directly detects the repeating pattern. It doesn't care about finding and capturing a real photo, mm -hmm. but does a very good job of finding out if there are patterns we find interesting, whether it's symmetry or, or repetition or the right scales, right, uh, right uh, aspect ratio, and, and so on. Right. Uh, and, the, and the same project. Uh, so these are, this is the Pantheon again in Rome. Uh, these are all the places from which people take photos. Uh, and if I just tell you, this is the top view of the, of the Pantheon. Uh, and in a, you usually are up here, there's a fountain. Uh, people start from here and then go in and roam around and take a picture of this big hole uh, in the Pantheon. <laughs> uh, so the question is, if I take uh, a picture here at the entrance, uh, and sorry, from, from inside the Pantheon looking out at the door, uh, and a picture from outside, what's the path that would connect these two photos? Right? It's not a straight line path, uh, but if I, I don't have an animation. I don't have it. Um, but if you actually have 
this again voting scheme, you realize the best way to go from this view to this view is follow this particular path. So this, this is data that's being captured from visual media, like photographs. But inherently, it's more about geometry, and I would call it it's almost non-visual. So that was computational camera. And let's think about computational photography now. Um, and uh, computational photography, I and my, my, my uh, uh, collaborator, Jack Tumblin, at uh, Northwestern, this is how we like to define it, the two parts. We want to capture the scene, and we want to synthesize the scene. And when we capture, we want to capture it in an extremely rich fashion, so that it's machine readable, and machine can understand what's out there. And when you synthesize, we want to synthesize in a hyper-realistic manner so that it, it uh, represents the essence of our visual experience. Uh, and within that, there are three, three major themes. One is epsilon photography, uh, which is basically generalized bracketing. So whether I want um, HDR or panorama, I'm going to take my camera, do uh, exposure bracketing or focus bracketing or view bracketing uh, and so on and just create a very nice picture and mostly to overcome the limitations of a camera. That's just epsilon photography. I'm going to change the parameters of the camera within an epsilon neighborhood. Um, and then people think of that as the ultimate camera. But again, we are not going to focus much on this part uh, in this course. The next part that's quite interesting is so-called coded photography. So the, 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 the comment we heard earlier, you know, I, really, I really care about some mid-level feature. I want to know if there's symmetry. I want to know if there's a repeating pattern. I want to know where the regions, are, where the edges are. I want to know how the regions can be segmented, and so on. And instead of taking multiple photos, such as in bracketing, I just want to take one or maybe two photos, which reversibly encodes the information about the world in my image. Uh, and the image may not be a single 2D image. It could be a light field camera where you actually have 25 images, but in a single snapshot. Or you could have a time of flight camera where you really can't call it a photo because actually measuring the, 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 the amount of time it takes for light to travel back and forth in a given direction, uh, and so on. Um, and it will be very useful for scene analysis. So a lot of our course will be actually uh, discussing uh, this, this part. Uh, and the last part is essence photography, which is really to see if we can go beyond this low-level features, which is pixels, and mid-level features, such as uh, motion and foreground and background and symmetry and so on, to uh, a high-level understanding. Uh, so that it's not just mimicking human eye, uh, but it's doing possibly things like this, you know, telling me what's, what's popular, uh, for example. Uh, and, and I claim that only when we have computational cameras and computational photography supporting this, we'll be able to create new visual art forms. So, so within that, um, this, is, this is a chart that we'll be talking about throughout this class, so I won't go into too much detail right now. But we have certain goals, the mid-level features, low-level features, high-level features, and so on. And we have certain tools. <coughs> we can capture the raw image. We can capture the incident angle and spectrum, such as UV and, and thermal IR. We can capture high-dimensional reflectance field. We have non-visual data, such as GPS and identity, uh, metadata, image priors, and so on. 
And with that, we're going to explore this whole space of uh, camera and photography. You know, of course, high dynamic range and so on is right here. We're not going to spend too much time on that. Uh, but we're going to think about you know, how can you insert a virtual object? How can you take a photo and relight, change the lighting in the scene? Um, uh, and so on. Uh, material editing, for example, from a single photo. Uh, uh, Ted Edelson is here, and he's done a lot of work uh, in this space. Um, and if you look at this, uh, look at this uh, chart, you realize that even the human vision is not at the top right of this diagram. You know, with human vision, I cannot look around a corner. I cannot see what's inside a body. I cannot tell you what's behind the curtain. Uh, you know, I cannot tell you uh, when I'm in Rome what's interesting, uh, and so on. So you really want to create this augmented human experience by uh, using these tools and using the mechanisms uh, that we have available. So we'll be coming back to this. Uh, just, just keep this in mind. Uh, and a lot of this is actually available in uh, the book that I and Jack Tumblin uh, have published. Uh, the PDF of this book will be available throughout the course, and the real book should be out anytime now. So let's see. All right. So just a couple of more slides, and we'll take a break. Let me skip over this one for now. It's one of my favorite examples. All right. So uh, we're also going to spend a lot of time thinking about uh, cameras that, sh again, show what's not seen. And I realized that uh, Matthias is here. That's his company. He's the founder of uh, Redshift, uh, thermal imaging uh, company. And uh, you want to say a couple of words? How sure. Works? Uh, so this was my second startup. Uh, and the idea was to build an ultra-low-cost thermal imaging camera uh, and use, do it using a standard uh, cell phone camera as actually the image sensor and using a little thermally tunable film as a translator between infrared and visible. Exactly. And the goal is to dramatically bring down the cost um, of, uh, of a thermal camera. So let's bring in our next toy. Will you need some time to set up? Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll set up uh, this other toy, which will very quickly take us towards the 60K. <laughs> um, and but you know you can do some amazing things. So this is not from uh, Matthias's company. Uh, is that a maker or just a? Yeah. They actually make cameras, or they just integrate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know they can use it in sports analysis. Uh, this is a game of cricket where uh, you know you want to figure out if the ball was hitting the bat or the pad. Uh, it's a very difficult call for the referee. But if they have a thermal imaging. Uh, camera, then uh, the ball here, if it hits the bat, uh, it will leave a hot spot on the bat. But if it hits the pad, it will leave a hot spot on the pad. So just by looking at an image, a couple of seconds after the ball has left uh, the player, you can figure out where, you know, if the ball hit the uh, ball hit the, the the bat or, or the pad. And this this is major. You know, people get really angry, and all the sports analysts will be writing, and 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 you know. Uh, you know, of the of the referee uh, next day in the in the press. So you know this really saves their life. Um, but the goal for for Matthias and other companies is to make it available, you know, possibly at the same cost as your traditional camera. 
Uh, I mean, if you think about a cost of a digital SLR, it was several thousand dollars. Uh, and now it's, what, about $500? You know, it's just silicon. It's not that expensive. If, if, uh, if uh, Canon or, or Nokia decides to have a thermal camera in every cell phone, they will be available for very, very low cost, very extremely low cost. What is your guess? What will the cost in five years? In five years, still, still $500. $500, that's, that's not bad, right? And as you'll see later in the class, uh, and you'll see this demo. Uh, we, can, we can do this in the break as well, so uh, take, your, take your time. Um, you know, it can do some amazing things. All right, so that was computational cam uh, camera and computational photography. And in this class, we're going to look at both aspects. This is how we're going to do it. Uh, we have two numbers, 131 for undergraduate and 531 for, for graduate. Uh, the main difference is uh, we have four assignments for the graduate version and three assignments for the undergraduate version. Uh, and we have a midterm exam where there will be fewer questions for the undergraduate version. Other than that, rest of the course uh, is, is very similar. So in the assignments, we'll be playing with, you know, hands-on with optics and illumination and sensors and, and other elements. Um, and we'll have, you know, all these toys available for you. We'll have uh, projectors. Uh, different light sources, uh, lasers, and, and things like that uh, to play with. And we'll also have a, a Best Project Award uh, at the end. Last year, uh, there was exactly one undergraduate student, and he won the Best, best Project Award. Uh, pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. He did, a, he did an amazing job. Because last year, we did not have an undergraduate version. It was only a, a graduate version. Um, midterm exam. Uh, will be early November. Um, a big component of the class uh, and, and your, your work would be a final project, which should be novel as well as cool. Unlike a lot of other fields, it is possible to come up with an idea that nobody else has even thought about in this in this field. So you you could come up with ideas that are not just incremental, but that could be game changing. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you later that three uh, three uh, projects final projects from last year uh, led to SIGRA for ICCB papers. And, and two of the projects are becoming you know, multi-hundred thousand dollar projects uh, very soon. So it is possible to come up in this class with ideas that are, that are, that are game changing. Um, if you are taking the class for credit, uh, you'll also take uh, class notes for, for one of the lectures. Uh, we'll have plenty of uh, guest talks, uh, inline and online discussion, um, as this class, most of the most of the material is, is on slides, but starting next week, about half the material will be on slides, and other half will be just on whiteboards and demos and so on. Uh, so, if you're looking at the slides, you'll get an idea of the type of material we are covering. But uh, in in uh, what I realized last year was most of the discussion was actually not captured in the slides. Um, and if you're a listener, uh, it's and I know a lot of lot of you are going to be listeners in this class, which is perfectly fine. Uh, but what I would like you to do is participate in discussion. Um, you know, bring in a new viewpoint. I want to learn from you. You know, I'm glad Matthias is here, for example, and you know he's the world expert, world's expert on thermal imaging. So you know, I, I want I want all of you to who are who are taking it for who are just listening in 
to, to contribute uh, to the discussion and, and give a new viewpoint. I will not be offended at all if you, if you jump in and, and give a new perspective uh, or a new reference about uh, what we are discussing. Um, and if you are uh, a graduate student uh, or, or, a, or a postdoc, then I would also like you to spend some time in sharing with us uh, you know, one short presentation, uh, maybe a cool idea or some new work uh, you are doing. Okay, that, that's what I would expect if you are not taking this class uh, for credit. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the credit breakdown, uh, we have about four or three assignments, depending on which uh, version you are taking. 40%, final project 30%, midterm 20%, and class participation that includes discussions off and online, as well as taking the notes. Uh, prerequisites. Now, let's see if I have a, I'll come back to that. Um, have another slide. The emphasis for this class is really on fundamental techniques in imaging. Yeah, it's coming up. It's going to be fun. Um, and in class, as well as in homework, the emphasis is on, on, on techniques. Uh, and they include all these keywords, pro signal processing, applied optics, graphics, vision, online photo collection, statistical techniques, electronics, uh, visual arts, and so on. And so it's, in that sense, it's not a discussion class. We're going to learn about techniques. All right, there is a different <laughs> entertainment here. Yeah, it's very addictive to play with cameras. Okay, so if you can just focus here for a couple of minutes. <laughs> um, and there are three areas we're going to focus on. Um, and please keep this in mind and, and, and note this. We're going to focus on photography. We're going to focus on active techniques, uh, real-time techniques, and we're going to focus on scientific imaging. So within photography, we're going to think in higher dimension. We're not going to think about just HDR or focus tag and so on. We're going to think about higher dimensional imaging, light fields, thermal imaging, range cameras, uh, and so on. Um, in uh, active computer vision, we're going to think about HCI applications, robotics, tracking and segmentation, and how we can change the game by using feature-revealing cameras. Uh, and a lot of concepts from scientific imaging, such as composite sensing, wavefront coding, deconvolution, tomography, point spread function, uh, and so on. And at first glance, these three areas might look very distinct and have very different techniques. Um, but fortunately, they all use very similar principles. And what we'll realize over the course is that uh, this fusion of these dissimilar ideas, I mean, tomography and wavefront coding seem very far away from traditional photography or HCI. But you realize that many of the problems you may be encountering uh, uh, and many of the uh, visual arts that you might be interested in uh, could be impacted from some of these new techniques. Um, so in terms of the prerequisites, um, last time I, I, I taught this course, uh, there was a request to be supportive of students with different backgrounds. So this is what we're going to track. We're going to track two tracks, uh, a software-only track and a software-hardware track. Uh, and software-intensive track is for those of you who are, you know, just because of your interests or want to do things in, in a particular way. Um, and you may be able to use some GUI-based software. Uh, and the software-hardware track, you will be using a lot of programming 
OpenCV, MATLAB, C++, uh, Flash, whatever you like, Java, it doesn't really matter to me, but you'll be doing a lot of programming. Um, and those of you who might be thinking about the software-only track, and you might be trying to use GUI, actually it will be a lot of work also. And those of you who use Photoshop know very well that even to do simple edits to a photo, you take you know hour, or two hours, sometimes six hours. Uh, and you'll realize that sometimes writing a small program, uh, you can do that task uh, much faster. But it's your call. <coughs> what is helpful but not absolutely necessary is uh, some knowledge in linear algebra, signal processing, image processing. Uh, but what's critical is that you should be able to think in 3D. Um, and this is a skill that that's absolutely necessary if you're in uh, if you're going to think about in higher dimensions. Uh, 3D is just the beginning, but we're thinking about 4D, 6D, 8D, and so on. Now, uh, we'll try to keep the math to you know basic essentials. I like to use a lot of diagrams and 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 visual uh, analogies in the in the visual analogies to explain the concepts. Uh, but when you're doing your own assignments, you will have to go back uh, to the equations. So I might just flash the equation, but I'll try to explain that again by, by, by uh, drawing on the board. Uh, but it's possible for you to go through the whole class without actually writing down a lot of equations. Uh, at the same time, many of these concepts are complex and they will arrive at a very fast pace. We'll be discussing a lot of concepts. Now, if you're the kind of person who can just sit back and watch a presentation and grasp a concept. Maybe you ask questions, it's interactive. This is an ideal class. Uh, on the other hand, if you're the kind of person who likes to really look at the math and, and, and see you know, what the relationship between the variables is and, uh, and so on, that's fine as well. So you need to have one of those two skills to be able to do well uh, in this class. Now, assignment versus class is, is also going to be a little bit different. As I said, during the class, you'll be listening to a lot of advanced and complex concepts. But the assignments are structured in such a way that they have increasing level of sophistication. So you can do pretty well without much background for up to the first 60 or 70 percent of the assignment. But to do the last 10 or 20 percent, you know, you will need a good background in some of these areas. So that's another way of thinking about how you might be able to take this class even if you don't have very strong mathematical, linear algebra, or single processing background. So you can do pretty well up to the 60 or 70% of it. And again, in the spirit of supporting students with varying background, what I will do is I will normalize your uh, performance in those homeworks based on what background you have. So if, if I know that you don't have linear algebra background and you're taking this class, I will think that if you reach 70% of that assignment, you had done a pretty good job. So I'll normalize it again by how much you know in that in that uh, particular um, the knowledge required for that particular assignment. So so you know you can really pick your level of uh, of how you want to do it. Uh, and we did this last time and it worked out pretty well. So we'll see if uh, we can we can do the same thing. And those of you who are uh, taking the 131 class for undergraduate. Please come and talk to me, and we can similarly figure out, based on the classes you have already taken, how we can structure those assignments. And when I, when I uh, for all those assignments, the four or three assignments, there's always an option. There are two assignments, and you can pick any one of them. 
So that gives you, again, an ability to pick um, an assignment that's appropriate for your level of understanding. All right, so let's see. Uh, any programming environment is fine. Uh, one class notes, uh, send me an email, raskar at media.mit.edu to put you on the mailing list. And we also have a sign-up sheet that I'll pass around in the break. Um, uh, and remember, uh, our class runs into the happy hour on Friday. So after the class, we'll all go over to the Muddle Charles and continue our discussion over beer. If you are over 18. No, <laughs> 21. Is it 21? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's at 4.30. Uh, this is uh, an outline for, rough outline of how we're going to proceed. Uh, we finish on December 4th. It's, it's, it's funny because the classes end on December 10th and our last class would have been December 11th. So I think having a Friday class with no final exam means you finish really, really early. So the semester ends on December 4th, which will be final projects. Unfortunately, the, the week before that is Thanksgiving. So Many of you will be thanking me for, you know, for the delay and, and the procrastination that led you to work for the Thanksgiving break. <laughs> um, yeah, let's do list here. All right. Some of the things we will not cover, um, or, or cover in a, uh, you know, not in detail, are the art and aesthetics of photography. Uh, the four dot three, four three, um, software image manipulation. Um, there's a great course by uh, Fredo Duran on digital computational photography, which is completely focused on software. So these two classes, Fredo's class and my class, is actually a very good complement of each other because in this class, the emphasis is more on hardware and optics and sensors and, and of course, software, but emphasis is on the, the hands-on elements. And uh, I believe uh, Fredo is not going to teach the class uh, in, in spring, but Bill Freeman, who's also a great instructor, is going to teach the class uh, in, in spring. That's what I hear. I haven't confirmed it. Um, and there are excellent classes in computer vision. I think, Ted, you're teaching a class on uh, scene perception. Shape. Sorry, shape perception. That's on Mondays. Mondays. Just Mondays. Well, we don't know when. All right. OK, but I, I already sent an email about uh, Ted's class on the, on the mailing list. So once I hear from you, I'll, I'll send it out again. Uh, there are a couple of great optics classes. Uh, this class is not about optics. You'll be learning a lot of concept, but the emphasis is not on optics. The emphasis is on imaging and photography here. Uh, we will not learn about Photoshop. Uh, actually, I don't even know Photoshop that very well. So you know, if you're going to do your assignments in Photoshop, please come and tell me. I'll, be, uh, I'll look forward to it. And we won't talk about anything that's included in the instruction manual of the camera. So you will not learn about you know, how to set the exposure and how to change the aperture and so on. I can, I'm happy to do a separate uh, crash course one of the evenings and we can all sit together uh, and, and do, do, a, do, a, do a course. Uh, and there are many people here. Ankit is a super expert with all kinds of cameras uh, and he'll be happy to do that as well. So we have a lot of resources available if you have those questions, but this class is not really about that. Uh, so as I said, a uh, few classes. Uh, I, I teach a class that's more discussion oriented in spring, uh, the computational photography class, uh, the optics class, uh, and uh, uh, Professor Horn. I don't know if he's teaching it in spring, do you know? Yeah, I don't know. All right, 
So, any questions about the structure of the class and uh, and what you expect? Uh, any roles? Yes. Excellent, excellent question. The question was, will I be posting assignments uh, in advance? What's going to happen is based on the feedback I receive, some of the assignments will change. But if you look at the, the OCW page from uh, last year uh, for this course, which is only an indication, by the way, because the course is changing significantly this year, you will see the, uh, let's see, is it projects? Uh, you'll see the type of assignments that were uh, given out. And it has all the details as well. So, you know, four assignments, relighting, and, and, and so on. So you can already get a sense of the type of assignments that were given. And uh, so, you know, again, there are options. There's 4A and 4B, for example. So you can, you can choose which one you, you like to do. Um, again, the, the, the open courseware page is for last year's course. And we are recording it for this year, but it will not be, it will not appear till next fall. So there's a long delay before, before the material appears. And next year we'll be doing something entirely different uh, again. Other questions? All right, so let's go around very briefly. Uh, I realize there are uh, quite a few people, so maybe 30, second, 30 seconds per person, uh, no more than that, uh, just to get a sense of who's here um, and uh, you know why you are here. So before we get started, uh, are you a photographer? All right, almost everybody. How many of you are videographer? You create videos. Okay, that's always it's funny, right? Why is there a distinction between photographers and videographers? Um, do you use cameras for computer vision? Pretty good. Uh, do you use cameras for uh, real-time processing like HCI or robotics and so on? Okay. Um, do you have background in optics or sensors? Okay. All right. So we have we have a, we have pretty good distribution here. So so let's start and very quickly go through uh, the uh, just your name department here and while you're here. Just 30 seconds. Uh, just I'll take this opportunity to say that uh, Professor Oliveira is, is the top scientist in graphics and vision from Brazil and he'll be in our group and we are assigning him and uh, Professor Mukai Gawa who is a famous researcher from Osaka University um, and both of them as well as Ankit Mohan who is a scientist uh, those three and some additional people will be the mentors for this class. So if you have any questions, you can come to me, or if you have, you want to brainstorm about projects or, or ideas or have questions, they'll be available as well during during the week. <laughs> ah, this is amazing! Just an amazing set of people: chemistry, arts, uh, communication, vision, HCI. Oh, it's going to be fun. Night vision goggles. <laughs> Night vision goggles. See, that would have taken us over 100K. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so let me just quickly um, make a couple of announcements and we'll, we'll break. Um, so there's a great opportunity for uh, those of you who are taking this class for credit. 
And there's a conference on computational photography, uh, which is the second uh, edition. Fredo Durand, who some of you may know from CSEL, uh, and Mark Lavoy and Rick Zaliski from Microsoft, uh, did the first one, which was this year in April. Uh, and myself and Hiros Kutalakos from Toronto and Rafael Pestrin from Colorado, who's one of the world's experts in wavefront coding. Uh, three of us are doing the second edition of this uh, conference, and it will be held here in the new building um, in, uh, in uh, last week of March. Uh, and the papers are due um, in November. So if you're doing well in this class and one of your project ideas uh, is interesting, you could even attempt to um, submit a paper for this, uh, for this particular conference, or at least as a demo or a poster or something like that. So, and it's right here on campus. Uh, and most likely we'll have additional opportunities uh, who are not in the, in the peer review track to, to show off uh, your work as well. So this, this is really catching on. Uh, a lot of big companies like Nokia and Samsung and Canon and HP all are, have started big research groups in computational photography and computational cameras. So it's, uh, there's a lot of interest. Um, another thing we're going to do in this class is, uh, <coughs> as I said, it is possible to come up with completely new ideas in this field. It's, it's such a new field uh, because of the intersection of, of lots of uh, interesting domains. So um, we're going to learn how to come up with new ideas, and we're going to learn how to write a good paper. We're not going to do exactly it in the class, but through, throughout the semester, during discussions with me and, and your mentors, we will help you actually write a good quality paper. Um, and writing a good quality paper actually has you know, really simple methodologies, which is amazing. We never learn about it in a, in a formal class. So we'll try to do that uh, in this class uh, because the final project is really important. So you know, just deciding if an idea is worth pursuing is half the battle. And we'll help you do that. You, know, you can actually just use uh, Halsmeyer's rules which uh, the military uses to decide whether they should pursue a project. Uh, and very simple questions. If you answer those questions, you know, you can very quickly make a decision whether you should pursue that, that project. Uh, and as I said, last year was extremely, extremely beautiful. There were papers that became uh, SIGGRAPH submissions, ICC submissions. Uh, Matt Hirsch, who took this class last year, went to SIGGRAPH and also went to student research uh, competition this year based on the class project he did. Um, and there are two major research teams that are coming out, one in mechanical engineering, some students that are starting this multi-hundred thousand dollar project based on the class project here and so on. So we really want you to focus on novel ideas that are cool and, and, uh, and, and publishable. Of course, those of you who have a design background or art background, we also will try to think about how they can be uh, given the right exposure. Uh, and you know, when it comes to technical publication, there are some simple rules that you can follow uh, to write a reasonable quality paper. So we'll, we'll help you do that. So uh, let me stop there with this image to uh, make you go a little bit dizzy. And then we'll reconvene in about 10 minutes. And in the second half, we will have a fast forward preview of the whole class. So we'll spend about two to three minutes uh, on each of the projects. We have about <coughs> 12 classes. We'll spend about five minutes on each class. And you'll see all the, all the teams. So in the break, we'll also have the thermal IR, thermal IR camera. Yeah. You can try that. Um, and uh, uh, Dan Sarkis uh, 
suggested for all of us to build this, what do you call it? Pinhole camera from just a piece of paper. So you can just take a piece of paper, cut it up, and build a pinhole camera. So if you want to do some projects in that space. Yeah. Uh,